Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We are a podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and also talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. How are you doing? I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson. And if you're listening the week this episode is released, happy Thanksgiving to you. And just like we did last year during this week of thanks, where we spotlighted the story of Victor Loria back in episode 28, we wanted to highlight a story that helps bring focus and meaning into this holiday season. And you know, Michael Warren, it's easy to sit back and gripe about all the small things in our lives and completely ignore all these really big, great things we're blessed with in life. But I think a lot of us are guilty of that. I'm trying to get better at recognizing all the good things and stop griping as much. We've become so inwardly focused that we often lose sight of the bigger picture. We do. And I'm very fortunate. You talked about Vic. Got to spend an evening with Vic a a few days ago. And and I'm reminded how positive people that have gone through bad things can be. And I wish I were more like that. I I really do. I, I recognize that as a weakness of mine. Talking to people like our guest today, I'm hoping is going to help me get to where I want to be. Well, I've gone through some uh, some rough situations myself, and when you come on the other side of that, you do have a different appreciation for things. And I think hearing our guest today speak in interviews, I think she has kind of the same mindset. If I'm, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think that's kind of where we're going today is to, to look inside to that. You know, Brent, uh, we've alluded to it several times on the podcast. We keep bringing people on that, that make me question and, and challenge me to be better. You know, my, my, uh, Mike. Uh, you know, the way that he handled his family and protected him from what he did, you know, Victor, and then our guest today. Um, it, it's a humbling experience talking to these folks, and I can't wait to hear what our guest has to say. Well, our guest has a remarkable story to tell. Uh, she got her starts back at the age of 18 as a member of the U.S. Air Force before making the transition into a career in law enforcement, first as a dispatcher in Pulaski County, Arkansas then as a police officer in Little Rock before joining the Bryan, Arkansas Police Department five years ago in October of 2018. Fast forward from there, one year after starting the Bryan, Arkansas Police Department job, she was finding herself in kind of a intense situation where where some might call it an ordinary wellness check. Officer uh, Officer Samantha Hodgkin found herself being fired upon in an event that left her in the hospital with severe injuries just days before Christmas in 2019. Now nearly four years separated from that encounter, she joins us today to tell her story. It's our pleasure to welcome it's our pleasure to welcome Officer Samantha Hodgkin to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking time for us. I know you're an SRO, and uh, we're trying to work this in so we can uh, hear from you. And it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I appreciate you guys having me. Hey, so, so uh, as we're recording this, uh, Veterans Day is just a couple of days away. So happy Veterans Day to you. Thank you Thank for you. your service. I, I will say that you are smarter than a lot of folks we've had on the podcast, including me, uh, that went Air, Air Force, Force instead of some of the other ones. <laughs> but, but, you know, <laughs> and we might as well get out of the way, okay? Because this yeah. time of year, the airwaves, the social media accounts are dominated by the Marine Corps with their birthday you know, coming up oh, here. Yeah. So, oh, happy birthday, you devil dogs. Yeah. Okay, let's get it done. <laughs> now let's let, let us get back to the funny memes and get away from all that stuff there. <laughs> so so you joined the Air Force right 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 out of school then, huh? Yep, pretty much. I I did a couple of college classes right out of high school and I'm like, eh, I can't <laughs> sit still. So <laughs> I signed up for the Air Force. I went in as security forces. So also known as MP for like all the other branches and whatnot. I was stationed in Alaska in Anchorage. So it was very cold, <laughs> very cold, but it was definitely beautiful. My dad is an Air Force veteran. He served back in uh-huh. the 60s and his he, he grew up in Indiana and his first duty station was Fort Yukon, Alaska, which is eight miles above oh, wow. the Arctic Circle. And it was a mm-hmm. very small contingent. He said it was the best year of his life, probably yeah. because he got away from everything, <laughs> everything that he knew. <laughs> Literally. But he yeah. had a blast. So where, where'd you go after Alaska then? Um, I separated in Alaska just because I wanted to be there for my daughter. Um, cause I unexpectedly got pregnant. 
Um, <clears throat> and so, and I found out I was pregnant when I was getting ready to deploy. So it's one of those dang it moments. Cause like, I really wanted to go and, but it was, everything happens for a reason. We were in Alaska and then my husband at the time got stationed in Okinawa, Japan. So we moved from Alaska to Japan, one extreme to the other. He's Air Force. He was Air Force as well. Yes. Yeah, because we, we also know that Okinawa has a very big Marine Corps contingent. Yeah. And recognizing the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. They always had us, everybody on lockdown because they don't know how to act off base. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's why we can't have nice things. Exactly. Seriously. It's like between the lines, true Hollywood stories right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I feel bad about it, but they bring it on themselves. They don't make yourself it. such an easy target. Exactly. <laughs> At what point then did, did you, did you get into civilian law enforcement? How did that come about? Well, it's it sounds cliche and probably people always say, you know, oh, everybody's got something to say about it. But literally, it was a childhood dream. I wanted to be a cop no matter what. After we got stationed here in Little Rock, well, we found out we were getting orders to Little Rock. Um, I'm like, bet we're going to fill out the application while in Japan. So when we get here, we can just start the process, you know, in my mind. And that's exactly what happened. Literally, I filled out the application while overseas. Started with Little Rock PD. Did them for quite some time. Like, literally learned a lot. I was downtown midnights and day shift, midnights, day shift, midnights. So, learned a lot, saw a lot. And I figured, let's separate from law enforcement for a minute. Go see the other side of the radio. Went over to Pulaski County Sheriff's Office, worked 911 dispatch for two years. And golly, talk about an eye opener. That <laughs> in my whole career was a huge eye opener. You, you know, people that, that haven't worked in this field, they really have no idea what it's like sitting a console in dispatch. It for is a completely hours. different animal. Oh, yeah. So when, when I first started, I started in dispatch. I, I've said it before on this podcast. One of the things that I struggled with was the lack of closure. You know, you send yeah. somebody on a call, but you don't get to see the end. And it's kind of like yeah. a, it's like starting to sing a song and then the song just turned off. You never get to finish yeah. the song. And that was yeah. hard for me. Yeah, I, there was a, quite a few calls that I handled people trying to commit suicide or overdosing and that sort of thing. And like you can hear and like coming from work in the street, going to the the room, the dispatch room, like being confined. Like I always had like, I want to go to that call. Like I want to go help that person. I don't want to just talk to them and try to talk them down or whatever. I want to go see it all the way through. But that was that was a challenging thing, though. God bless those that, that sit behind the console that are yes. able to do that job in a way, because oh, literally yeah. what they do is life saving. That's not me. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't do that. I, I I needed to be on the other end of things. So yeah. so you start you start off in Little Rock. Mm -hmm. You switch to the other side of the console. What drove you to say, you know what, this is important work, but it's not work that I should be doing. What what happened at that point? Well, I, I always knew it coming into it like that my ultimate goal is law enforcement, the street, like hands on type stuff. But like I said, I just, it was just one of those things I feel, I felt like I needed to learn and just sitting there shift after shift. Like I grew a great relationship with most of the deputies because I'm originally from New York and down here in the South, they talk very slow. <laughs> Coming from a Yankee. <laughs> yeah. I would talk too fast or I would be too loud or, you know, they would they would just misinterpret my tone. How many times did you hear bless your heart? Oh, every day. Uh, all right. This is Samantha. See, you and I went in opposite directions, okay, because I came up north from down south. And I can remember sitting there dispatching a fire run. So I need you to respond on a tire fire. And they, they get on there. And, like, and we sh it was a shared frequency right there. Well, what did you say? It's yep. like there's oh, a yeah. vehicle ablaze. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what they want to hear. <laughs> like I said, I, they, a couple of them would give me grief. But I would just keep going back and forth with them. Just playful banter, I guess you could say. They realize that I'm very easygoing and 
that's just how I am. Like, and we're not talking fast right now because I have braces and a whole lot of metal in my mouth because of the story. I'm speaking very slow, like I'm getting into the southern mode. <laughs> so, so you, you you said you know what I, I've got to I've got to change. How, how did that change come about? What, what what was the process for you there? I would say it was a super easy process because I knew I already knew in my heart what I wanted to do, and. One of the nights we were on night shift and we had a lull moment. I was just looking around at cities, different areas that were close by. And not only for me, but for my daughter, you know, schools, communities, sports, that sort of thing. That's another thing I was looking at. And Bryant had everything in my mind I was looking for, you know, like the kids got a good school. She can, you know, grow up in a small little town. Well, it's grown a lot, but... Just a smaller town, you know, it'll be more homey, I guess. And that's kind of why Brian came to. Little Rock is a pretty good sized agency. And so you've got experience there. Sometimes people struggle coming from busier, larger departments and going to, mm-hmm. to smaller departments. Did you experience any of that? Or did you say, you know what, this right here, this is where I was meant to be? That's kind of how I felt. Honestly, like, yeah, having that go, go, go constantly was eye-opening. You learned a lot. Like, in literally an hour, you could learn things you never knew existed on planet Earth in Little Rock. But over here, it was like I had that go, go, go experience. I knew how to gather everything I needed in such a quick time that coming over here, it was easy. Um, Like, it was more like, okay, I, I already got all that down before I even got to the call type thing little challenging but mainly easy when you find your place you know what i mean it's a comforting feeling that that also has its drawbacks Uh, because when we get comfortable as human beings and and it's not just policing it's it's human beings when we get comfortable we start cutting corners and we start doing things differently it's something we have to guard against but Mm -hmm. the incident that we're going to talk about today before we get into the details, what was the date that it occurred? December 23rd, 2019. I'm going to run a story by you here, mm-hmm. and you tell me if you, you have similar, I've had similar thoughts. I can remember yeah. working one of my, uh, before I retired, one of the last Christmas days, okay? In most agencies, there is an expectation that those days around Christmas are going to be slower than others. You <laughs> might, you might, you might have more traffic accidents because people are going to, you know, the way yeah. up here in North, we get bad weather, snow and stuff like that. So you have more, you don't necessarily expect the, the high stress, high danger type calls. And, and I remember right out of the gate, Christmas Day. I mean, we're sitting in briefing 7 a.m. We, we get uh, unresponsive mail in a car in front of a house. Mm. And so we, we run on it, me and another guy, we run on it, and it's an overdose. Mm. We're working hard. We brought the guy back. But in reflection, I, I thought about my mindset probably mm-hmm. wasn't where it would be if it had been January 15th as opposed to December 25th because of that holiday season, because of the way that we're built as human beings. Have you ever experienced that type thing where it's like, you know, Thanksgiving day, you know, those type things, you go into work with a different mindset than perhaps you would on a quote unquote regular day. Yeah. So uh, on December 23rd, what, what shift were you working? So at that time we were switching, we would do like three months day shift, three months night shift. So that was the first night shift rotation. Um, and it was, I think it was 6P to 6A. So it was, it was wintry night, <laughs> very cold. You know, you're, you're thinking about Christmas, you're trying to get things ready, but you're having to work. And uh, at what, what time during your shift did this incident occur? Before going into work, my daughter and I were literally wrapping Christmas presents and put them under the tree and whatnot. So, and like at the time, I was a single mom, so she was living her best life wrapping her own presents. And stuff. <laughs> she knew what she was getting. <laughs> but that's important to point out, though, yeah. because as somebody in the first responder field, 
an hour before you're working, you're literally wrapping presents. Your mind is in a completely different place. And, you know, people talk about flipping the switch. There is no flipping the switch. It's a matter of transitioning, not an instantaneous thing. So you, you come in there, you're wrapping presents. Now, you know, now we got to go to work. Okay. Yep. How did the shift start out for you? Was it a normal, no quote unquote, normal day for you? For the most part, I mean, I'm 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 only five feet tall, and like all the guys are like six one, six two, like big boys. I'm like the little sister of the entire group. We were literally before the call at Come and Go getting coffee because what cop doesn't drink coffee? So one of the guys, he's like, "How many steps do you take when I take one step?" I'm like, "What?" So of course we were gauging how many little runs I have to do in order for their one big gaping step. So that we're literally just trying to enjoy the night, the start of the 12 hour shift. At the time I was 122 was my call sign and I was the South unit. Um, so the interstate is like our dividing factor, like anything South of the interstate, North, you're responsible for it. And me being me, I'm a very, even my, my husband and my daughter and everybody will tell you like, she follows the rules too damn much. Like, so I get a call you know, it's a suicidal subject and I hit my lights and sirens and I'm on my way down, hauling butt down past the high school and going to the call. And that's kind of where, you know how they say your gut instinct, it triggered like something's like, okay, we got to tread lightly on this one. They embed in you and like the military and training of all kinds, like no call is the same. Yeah, it's got the same title, suicidal subject, private property accident, disturbance, whatever. Like, it's got the same title, but it's never the exact same situation. So I get there to the address that the mother gave me. Initially gave dispatch and uh, the wrong address. It's one of those things, and, and we've talked about it on our podcast before. Dispatch plays a very big role in mm-hmm. officer safety. And oh, yet, yeah. they're some of the most undertrained people in the law enforcement profession. So they get this call of a possible suicidal subject. They send you to an address that was given to them by the mother. People say, well, you know, question everything. Well, you can't question everything. You would never get okay. anything done if you question every single thing that came your way. So in your mind, you had to be thinking, well, this is where it's going to be. And that plays a direct role in the way in which you respond and the way you handle it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Like, cause I mean, I'm going to that address. I knew exactly where it was and that's where I was going. Like, I didn't think anything past that, you know, cause I'm figuring, okay, if mom's calling in, she knows where her son lives. If anybody knows it's where my mom knows, mom knows those things. Exactly. Yeah, so we go to the address, and of course, I wake up a guy who just got done with his little friend's Christmas dinner, and he was drunk as a skunk. Like, he was was trying to take a nap. (laughs) Just got done eating Christmas dinner with his buddies, and he was trying to take a nap. (laughs) All right, so so you're you're dispatched on the call. You go there. Obviously not the guy. We we can't just walk away. You know, you've got to do a little bit further investigation. Uh, How did you go about getting the correct location? So thankfully, the corporal at the time, who's now a sergeant, he lived in those uh, in that area and knew the apartment manager contacted them. He did a little digging. I'm on the computer, you know, trying to figure out if we if this guy has a different address listed or what. However, we can find it because, I mean, let's be honest, cops are a little nosy. We, we got to figure stuff out. So we were, we were digging. And thankfully we found it. We found the address, found the guy. And, you know, me being me, I remember like, okay, let's go. So I'm leading the way. Then the corporal had um, a new guy to us, not to law enforcement, but to us, I guess the, the new guy for the night. So they were coming. I mean, and plus, no matter what call I would go on, there would be another guy there with me. Just because, like I said, blue family, and I'm sure you guys have said it before, it's a thing. It's a real life thing. Like we're with each other more than our families sometimes. And you just grow that bond of familyness and it's, it's strong. So somebody was always coming with me to a call, which I appreciated every day, all day. And I still do. 
so we figure it out and we head up to the apartment. It was a second story apartment on the back side. So it was very dark. Didn't have very good lighting and stuff, but that's why we have these handy dandy flashlights that are light up the world. So we, we head up, we go up there to the apartment and in my mind, it's not routine. Like it, obviously we have to adapt to every call that we go to, like depending on how, how serious, how minute, like just depending on everything. We have to adapt to it like a little chameleon, I guess you could say. We get up there and he's got Christmas decorations and like a little bit of decorations on his door. So I'm like, okay, he's probably got a kid, whole family. Like he's just having a bad night. And in the military and through all of my training, the door, any door is the fatal funnel. Yep. Never stand in the middle of the door. You always stand to the side of it, you know, as far away as you can get within reason, depending on everything going on. And so me being me and the way I process it in my mind, if I'm, if I'm in front of a door and I already know it opens in, I go to the opposite side of the door handle. So when it opens in, if I'm over here, I can see it, everything as it opens, like what's right there. So in my mind, that's how it works for me. I did my thing. I went to the right side of the door and the other officer stood to the left. And another thing they teach during training is sometimes females and like if you're going on a call with a male, they don't want to talk to a female. They'd rather talk to a male and then vice versa. Like, you know, they don't want to talk to a guy. They'd rather talk to a girl. So it, it crossed my mind, but I didn't really think too far into it. Like when we first got there, but after standing on the, the right side of the door, I kind of pushed some, like something just told me like, push that out of the way. So I pushed his decorations closer to the balcony because, like I said, we're on the second floor. So there's like a little guardrail that I just pushed all of his decorations over to. And, of course, I knock with my flashlight because, I mean, just more extension away from the door. And it's loud, better than my, the guys say I have tiny hands. So it, <laughs> the flashlight will be heard better than my hands, probably. Listen, if you've ever had the police knock at your door, you know the police are knocking at your door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we knock on the door, and I think I knocked about a dozen times. And then I got called. You know, we did our announcement. You know, Brian, police, Officer Hodgson, what can I help you with? What's going on? I get called every name you can think of. The names I didn't know I had at birth. So definitely learned something new about myself. All our mind is looking for is a coherent story. And you've laid out this story that makes perfect sense. You see that, you know, that this the time of year, the decorations, the time of day, all these things are leading you. Plus the fact that dispatch told you that mom said that he's suicidal. Suicidal means that I am potentially going to do harm to myself but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to do harm to others. So all these mm -hmm. things are playing into the way that you respond. Your mind has to go with incomplete information. You have to make decisions mm -hmm. off of incomplete information. And it sounds mm -hmm. like you handled it exactly the way that I would have handled it. And, you know, mm -hmm. because too often, I think in situations, people try to armchair quarterback and money more more quarterback, you know, what was done or what wasn't done. Oh, yeah. I've heard plenty of stories of my own story. Yeah, it's the reasonable officer on the scene at the time. That's what the measure has to be on the decisions okay. that were made. So so you get called a bunch of names. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, is both entertaining and concerning, you know, you know at the time. <laughs> yeah, red, red flags are popping up everywhere. <laughs> okay, so what, what happened next then? So, and so I look at the other officer on the left side of the door. I'm like, hey, maybe he wants to talk to you. And obviously that leans back to, you know, he's a guy. He probably doesn't want to talk to a female right now. Maybe it's Christmas. They're fighting over gifts or money or whatever. So he doesn't want to hear from a female. The other officer, Officer Hastings, he knocked on the door. Of course, he got called a couple names. And then he knocked again, like on the door handle to kind of make it more, I guess, hey, open the door type thing. We're trying to check on you. Because in my mind, I'm like, I just want to help this guy. Like, it's Christmas. Let's just make sure you're good. And I'll leave you alone. I'll get out of your hair. Like, that. all I need to know is that you are okay. If you want help, I've got it for you. If you don't want it, then I'll keep it for somebody else. It, that's all my whole goal was. 
Anyway, so Officer Hastings, he knocks on the door, and all of a sudden, I hear a very loud bang. Sounded like uh, just a very loud explosion. And all of a sudden, I open my eyes, and I see the guy is literally looking down at me. So Corporal McCabe was in the stairwell. Thankfully, he was behind the brick pillar, and he didn't catch any of them that I know of. And then Officer Hastings, you know, he came from the left and then the right. And then all I remember thinking was I dropped a big old (laughs) F-bomb. Definitely said the F-bomb because I knew exactly what happened. Just didn't know where. And so I see them looking down and then I hear uh, Corporal McCabe. He's like, officer down, shots fired, shots fired. And then I hear him say, get her, get her, get her. And he's, of course, talking to Hastings. And so I remember just putting my arms up and then they like wrapped me up and pulled me down, like literally drug me down two flights of stairs. I don't remember the stairway down, but I remember when they laid me at the bottom of the stairs and they're trying to figure out where he is, like making sure I'm not needing to put a tourniquet or something on, like doing like a check, a whole check. They're like, okay, grab her. And they, he's like, Corporal McCabe, he was like, are you okay? I said, I'm okay. I'm like, let's go. Because I couldn't get up. I knew I couldn't get up because I was dizzy. Of course, I put my arms up again, grabbed them, like, like grabbed my arms. They drug me down the sidewalk. I remember pushing my feet. You know how, like, you push, like, if you're scooting your butt along the sidewalk or something? Like, I remember doing that to help them go faster, to get away just in case they had to return fire in case he comes out again trying to fire. We get to the parking lot and that's where Officer Hastings, he had quick clock gauze in his vest, which I have now, and he put it on my neck. Because at that time, again, I didn't know where I was hit. I knew I was hit, I just didn't know where. And I kept, kept going in and out. I remember on planet Earth, I guess you could say, and then like falling asleep. So I was in and out. Understanding, you didn't know where you were hit. No, I had no idea. How long did you think, and I know that you were going in and out, how long do you think it took from the time that you heard that explosion uh, until they got you out on the sidewalk? I want to say at least a good minute, a very long minute, because they, they moved quick. Because I did review all of the body mic footage, all the video car camera. Because at the time, we didn't have the actual body cameras. We had just the body mic. Okay. We were in the process of transitioning from it. But I listened to all of it. So it was about a minute. It's a very short time period that we're talking about here. But even going in and out, the the the, the thoughts that were going through your mind. Oh, yeah. I know I'm hit, but I just don't know where. And if I don't know where, I don't know how bad. And if I don't know yep. how bad, then I, I don't, there's a whole bunch of things that I don't I don't know. Oh, yeah. You're going in and out. He puts the quick clot on. And by the way, uh, first aid stuff really doesn't help you in an emergency if it's in your patrol car. It needs to be yeah. on your body somewhere. Mm-hmm. You never need it more badly than when you need it right now. So carry exactly. it on your body. All right. So, so you're fading in and out. They put the quick clot on. What happens now? So in my mind, like when we were stopped right there at the parking lot, like I'm just even throughout the whole process, like every time I was on, you know, alert, I was just telling myself, you're okay. It's okay. Like, okay, went through my mind at least a million times during that minute. It was just one of those things that calmed my breathing down. And because that's, of course, another thing that the military would always harp on. I mean, even in Little Rock, a couple of the trainings, like, you know, you're running really fast, just control your breathing. Like, it'll it'll help. Combat breathing, telling myself I was okay. And so we get to the parking lot, and the ambulance finally pulls up. Fire trucks are coming down. You can hear them. And at this point, I could hear all the sirens. Calvary was coming. Everybody from Little Rock, Benton, everywhere. Everybody was here. And so they get me on the ambulance. I guess I FaceTimed a family member and didn't realize I was FaceTiming a family member. And she's like, what happened? I'm like, I don't know. I think I was shot. Like, and she, I had my camera up, like showing her everything. I'm like, I don't know. Like, cause it was, it was crazy. And she's like, I can't believe you did that. I'm like, I don't remember doing it. Like I'm hearing it from you. (laughs) They get me there into the ambulance. They assess everything. And then when I look down, 
that's when I realized I had to have been hit up high because I saw blood on my badge and like my whole uniform was covered. So that's kind of when it hit when I in the ambulance, I would say, is when I realized where I was hit. When people think about getting hit in, you know, neck high, most people think that that's going to be something that's fatal. You know, once you realize where this had occurred, what starts Mm -hmm. going through your mind at that point? I had a feeling I was going to die. It did go through my mind. Like I thought I was done for because who gets hit in the head with a 12 gauge shotgun bird shot? Who gets hit in the head and survives that? Like any kind of gunshot for that matter. Like, cause at that time I knew I was hit in the head. I didn't know what he had used, but I mean, obviously afterward you figure it out, but I literally didn't think I was going to make it. Cause I kept going in and out, like in and out, in and out. And then they called for the helicopter to come. It landed on the backside of our target that we have over there. I remember seeing the chief. He asked for my cell phone and I said, no, I put it in my pocket. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, they took everything else. I remember when they were backing me into the helicopter, telling the flight nurse, I'm like, look, and like, I remember this clear as day. I know it's dark outside because it's nighttime. It was like nine, almost nine o'clock, eight thirty, nine o'clock. I'm like, I know it's dark. I know it's cold because it's almost Christmas, but it's getting very dark and it's getting extremely cold. And she's like, you'll be okay. I'm like, I'm okay. We recognize the need for the helicopter because it gets you Mm -hmm. to a place that can help you more quickly. But that also psychologically, man, they're calling for a chopper. It must really. And, and yeah. so when you're when you get on there, you tell her, hey, listen, it's getting really dark. Hey, you're going to be OK. What happens next? Then I told her I don't like flying because <laughs> I hate flying. I joined the Air Force and I hate flying. It's like joining the Navy and not liking the water. I don't know. Just saying. No. You buried the lead there. You're Air Force. You don't like flying. I don't. This is an interesting conundrum we have here. Yeah. So yeah, I told her, I said, look, I just, I don't like flying. She's like, it's okay. And she's like, okay. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'm good. So they give me a little bit of medicine. I call it a cocktail. Cause when you like, when you go in for surgery and stuff, you're feeling super loopy and I fell asleep. That point, like I didn't know if I died. Like I remember that, that portion clear as day. Like in my mind, I knew what happened. I realizing what everything that happened and I'm, you know, comprehending how I'm feeling. And I, I just go to sleep afterwards. Like when I woke up in the hospital, I'm like, Oh my God, I thought I died. Literally like, Holy cow. I, you, I blacked out, but I'm here wait, like trying to make sense of it all. Like it's a lot to process at once, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. A lot, a lot, a lot to process at once. Cause I mean, you know, you're hit, you know, you're, you're bleeding if you're hit. So, I mean, it's just one of those things like, what road are we going to take left or right? So we get to the hospital. I remember them wheeling me off because I got really cold again. And of course it was cold as can be down here. Like it's, it's different from North. It's like a different cold. So you get really cold. It's a wet cold. It's a bone chilling cold. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It is cold. But so we get off the helicopter and I remember like feeling the wheels, like bump on the little bumpy things on the walkway. And then I remember seeing a bright light. Now, keep in mind, I was hit on the left side from literally like, I guess you could say the corner of my left eye all the way up and down to my shoulder and all the way to like the back of my neck. I remember seeing a very bright light and then shadows. It looked like shadows, like tall people, short people, like just people along the wall. Couldn't make anybody out. Couldn't see color. Couldn't see anything. I just look like shadows. So I'm going down and I'm just, I'm breathing because I knew where I was at the hospital. I knew something was wrong. So I focused on my breathing and in my mind telling myself it's okay. So we get to the trauma room. They back me in. And of course, a swarm of doctors, a couple of guys, like they're all like right there. Like, oh my God, are you okay? Like, let's fit. We got to fix this. And I'm like, I just laid there and then I was in and out in the trauma room and then 
I think they took a couple of CAT scans and MRIs or whatever those medical terms are. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know. <laughs> We're doing that, all that stuff. And then I remember telling the nurse, I'm like, I have to go to the bathroom and I'm going to puke. Like, I, I can feel it. And she's like, no, you're fine. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> and then I roll over and I puke on her shoe, I think. Oops, I, I warned her. <laughs> and then I'm like, I got to go to the bathroom. So they handled all that business. And and then I just fell asleep. Uh, apparently that night I had one eye surgery that night just to see. Because my eye, it was, it was swollen and like it was all swollen. And then I woke up in the hospital to people coming in and out, in and out. Like the community here is, it's like family. Literally, they were there at the drop of a dime helping with my daughter. Because like I said, I was a single mom at the time. She was home by herself enjoying a good old Dr. Pepper. I had just gotten her from come and go and a, a baggie of worms, those gummy worms. So, you know, she's living her best little teenage life. So everybody helped with everything and it was phenomenal. Like just having that bond with the community and the PD, like it was, it was huge. And I'm already starting to tear up, Brent, daggone it. The first time you saw your daughter, mm -hmm. what was that like for you? She curled up on, from what I can remember, she curled up on the bed on top of the blanket, kind of like on my, on my right side. Cause she was scared to be on this side. I mean, everybody, anybody would. And I'm like, it's okay. Everything's fine. During the shooting, when they were dragging me, my phone rang. I don't remember it, but after watching the video, my phone rang and my kid, I gave her the most obnoxious ringtone. So I, I can hear it no matter where I'm at, what I'm doing. You can hear on my body mic that it was her phone call. I answered it at some point. I was like, Abby, I'm good. I got to go see the doctor and I love you. And then she's like, okay, I love you, mom. Bye. And we hung up. I, like I said, I don't remember doing it, but according to the body, Mike, I did that exactly that. And I guess that's why I didn't give the chief my phone. I, I can't imagine what it must've been like for your daughter when somebody has to come and get her, mm -hmm. you know, because yeah. she needs to be there. I can't mm -hmm. imagine what that must've been like for her. She finally was able, I think, when I got home from the hospital, we didn't talk about anything for at least a couple of months, which is perfectly fine. You're still processing it, that it's normal. But when she finally started talking about it, she said, I heard the sirens because I keep the windows open for fresh air. I drove right past where we live with my lights and sirens on. She called while I was running code, but by policy, you can't answer your phone or do anything except the radio and computer and whatnot. And so I knew it was her. She was calling. She's probably trying to figure out, mom, what are you guys doing? You know, cause I'll tell her some stories, not all of them, some, and she tried calling, but she said she heard those sirens, saw a couple lights. And then she's like, she says it was like a minute later, I hear a lot of sirens and a helicopter and all this other stuff. And she's like, and then I followed you on life 360 over all the trees to UAMS. Oh, I'd never even considered that right there. That had to be surreal watching your little blip going yep. across. My mom doesn't like flying. What is going on here? Oh my goodness. Yeah, so she, she had a lot to process, but that goes back to my Blue family. They were there. I had a family member at the time down here. She was here. Like they were helping with literally my life like everything my life because my kid I, hands down like i will do whatever i need to for her like no matter what any of us would and but they were there drop of a dime picked her up brought her to the hospital then whenever i got to my room is when they kind of let her in there and she didn't leave my side i have a couple of pictures where she's in the background and she is just sitting still as can be like in the comfy chair, just not moving. She was just making sure nobody seen her so she could stay there because she didn't want to leave. It was a long process, not only for me, but for her as well. How long did you end up staying in the hospital? Hospital, I was only in there for five days. Yeah, notice how she said only, Brent? 
you know, f- five days anywhere, even on vacation, is a pretty good length of time. Just saying. Yeah. Well, I know the hospitals will try to get you in and out as quickly as possible, and you, and, and, and a lot of times you don't get a lot of rest in the hospital because there's no, people coming in and out of so much. So it's almost best to go home to to do a little bit of your recovery. But your recovery just starts when you kind of get home. Yeah. And I think we failed to mention this is December 2019. You're going into COVID you know, in a couple of months and lockdowns and yep. then you're rehabbing at home and that had to be a, its own separate issue. Oh, so yeah. you had a lot of plates in the air. It was a lot, like a lot, because I couldn't actually physically go to therapy appointments and whatnot. I had to do Zoom and I'm like, this is dumb. Like I'm not interacting like I need to. I want to take you back to the hospital for a second if I yeah. could. When you finally were coherent and, and not going in and out, and the doctor or doctors come to you and they're explaining to you what happened to you. When they did that, what was going through your mind at that point? Where you think, oh, mm-hmm. oh my goodness. I, I cussed. <laughs> I definitely said a few cuss words. Whenever they told me, they're like, you'll be fine. You're going to make a recovery. We just have to monitor a few things. And depending on those few things, you know, you'll be back to normal. I'm like, mm, I don't think I'll be back to normal Normal after this. Like, it'll be a, a different normal, a new norm. It didn't really hit me as far as what happened and how it happened until I was at home. People kept knocking on the door. I'll show up, with, like, I'll open the door, and there's, like, groceries everywhere. I'm like, this really flipping happened. That's that's fantastic. You, you, you talked about that the, the first the first night you had an eye surgery. Or mm-hmm. What were the worst of your injuries? I, I know that, that when you're talking about birdshot, there's a lot, a lot of little things that go in a bunch of different places. What were the worst of your oh, injuries? Yeah. I would say my worst injury it was my eye, only because people take for granted. I mean, I'm guilty of it. I know a lot of people are guilty of it. Eyesight. You're, you're just looking around. You see everything. It, and you're like, eh whatever i can see it whatever but the darkness like when i would open my eyes i mean i got you know you got crusties in your eyes and stuff in the mornings you gotta wipe them out and you fully expect your other eye to be open looking at everything not being able to see was the worst part for me just not being able to see out of my eye and then you you recently got braces yep i had to that would be the second thing would be my jaw my jaw since i was the whole impact was my ear my jaw like mainly my head and neck on the side one of the bird like i guess a couple of one or two of the bird shots kind of hit my eyeball itself and like i had a detached retina that they had to go in and fix three different times three different surgeries for that and the last surgery was kind of like we don't know. It might work. It might not. I said, just give me the cocktail. Let's go. You got a job to do. I need to see. I got I got to finish my, we got to finish this. So thankfully, I, you know, he's like, don't take the eye patch off for three days. I'm like, okay, mm, what cop listens? I took it off. Now you said you were a rule follower earlier. I'm just saying. Not when it comes to the eyesight though. <laughs> but, but I took the eye patch off and I, it was, everything was upside down, but I could see. So I guess that's why he told me not to take it off. Cause everything has got to like reflip itself or something. I don't know. But I could see, and I was at that time, like whenever I didn't follow that rule, (laughs) it kind of made me feel better. Like I was like, okay, let's process this now. Like let's get dive ahead first and process all of it. Because you're trending in the right direction at that point. So, okay. And and, and now that I know that that I'm going forward, Uh then I can process this. How long? And I hate to say was the recovery process because you're still ha- you're still having to deal with it. But yeah. but the, the rehab process, how, how long did that take you? Hmm. I want to say uh, I was in timeout. I call it timeout because just, it makes me feel better. <laughs> so I was in timeout for nine months. Wow. So it took me nine months. And like, like I said, I got I have braces and stuff on now because they're realigning my jaw they're pushing my jaw back to the left it messed it all up in that joint and your jaw plays a big role in your day-to-day life when it comes down to everything (laughs) it's like it's like when you stub your pinky toe you don't realize how much you use that daggone thing until it hurts (laughs) 
Exactly. I, I had surgery on my abdomen, and you didn't realize how much your abdomen you used to turn yourself in bed yeah. until you're cut open. You don't realize these things until you don't have them anymore. Exactly. And, like, just eating and everything, my jaw would pop, like, every time. Like, even when I would swallow sometimes, the left side, it would pop. And at night, because, of course, with all of this, I had some very bad nightmares, like, crazy nightmares. And my jaw would clench, like, it would just lock. So, with the injury and whatnot, it made it hard just to open my mouth in the morning and whatnot. Personal question here. Was uh-huh. there any point during this process where you were thinking to yourself, I'm not going back to this job? You know, I, I, I can't put my daughter through this again. I can't put myself through this again. You know, uh, maybe I've used up my one lucky, my, my, my second life or whatever. But yeah. was there any point where you were thinking to yourself, yeah, th- th- this is it? No. Really? Yeah. It, was there any point that your daughter was saying, mom, don't go and do that? There was one where she, she, we actually sat down and talked about all of that. Literally went into detail about like my lifelong goals, her lifelong goals, like what she wants to do, what she's excited about. Literally in detail with her, talked about every bit of it. Cause I told her, I'm like, you know, this is something I've dreamt about, dreamt about doing until the day I, I can't walk anymore. And I said, this right here is a game changer though. I said, we can go one of two ways. And that would be me retiring and just stepping away from law enforcement 100%. And then I will try to find another job. I even told her this. I'm like, I don't see myself doing anything else. I just don't. And she's like, okay. I said, we can do that. Or I can become an SRO because she, after all of this, she's got this thing where she has to have an eye on me, not me on her, my eye on her, but an eye on me to kind of help her get through her, her time. And I said, then let me become an SRO. I'll be right there with you. We'll have all the time off, same time off, same holidays, like any sporting event. I will, I'll be right there. I said, don't answer the question right now. I said, give it a week, give it two weeks if we have to, because we have nothing but time right now. And she literally wrote a little letter and I read it and she's like, at the end of it, it's like, follow your dream. That's awesome. It was just one of those things I needed to have her approval because if she would have been like, no, yeah, I don't want you to go back. It's too hard for me. There's this. I would have, I would have stepped down. It sounds like you have a very mature and smart young woman that you've, that you've raised. Oh Yeah. She's got a good head on her shoulders. She truly does. She doesn't see it or realize it, but I told her one day she will. She'll she'll see all of it when she's least expecting it. We talked about the impact that it had uh, on your daughter, Mm -hmm. but I think a lot of times what is lost when there's an incident like this is the impact that it has on those that we work with. You know, Mm -hmm. how, how did this impact and how are the folks that were there with you, how are they handling things? At first, I want to say just because I was very involved at first, like they were at the house often, you know, we were checking on each other all the time. And a couple of the guys really didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to relive it. They didn't want it. They just wanted to be like, it happened. Let's move on, which I respect because some people they deal, they deal with things differently. But in my mind, I'm like, no, you're, you're my brother. Like we've, talk to me about this because not only obviously you got stuff you got to work through but me talking to you is part of me coping with almost dying like it's just one of those things one of them walked with me through the entire thing like because one of my therapy healing procedures and for me because it's just me I wanted to walk up the stairs look at the door and walk back one of them came with me we went and did it and it was the hole was still in the door there was still blood stain on the stairs and like a little puddle on the top and on the bottom that was mine there was of course the other guy's blood as well but it was mainly me just going there to see it closure yeah mm-hmm. closing that it's door a sense of just bringing the whole thing yeah yep yep when you're there when something like this happens that sense of mortality 
it, it not only affects you, it, it affects them. And it yep. affects their family members because they realize, uh -huh. hey, you know, this abstract thing that was out there, this abstract threat, uh, it's real and, and uh -huh. it, it can cause problems. It seems like that your community and your agency have been very, very supportive of you throughout this entire process and that oh, yeah. had 100%. to really relieve a lot of your stress. It, it did because, like I said, like in the hospital, somebody was always there somebody was always with my daughter like somebody was always there making sure i was still looked after and my kid was still looked after and i mean the everybody like i said has different ways of dealing with it for the most part i want to say everybody's okay we of course joke around with each other a lot now like literally about it like we'll see geese flying over and they're like golly i wish i had my shotgun and my bird shot i'm like hang on i've got the bird shot for you i don't have the shotgun <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of morbid, but but it's part of the coping process. Exactly, it's just one of those things. Like it, just to like let it go and kind of just it's there. It happened. It'll forever be something I have to physically and mentally deal with. But nothing says you have to dwell on it. So as as we wrap this incredible story up, how has this changed your mindset, your outlook? on life as we're in the thanksgiving week has it made you more thankful for life as you know it time with your family time with your friends that's exactly what i was about to say time time is what i'm thankful for because literally it can be ripped away from you in a tiny little half of a second ripped away from you especially when you don't see it coming because like i said the the guy he didn't he didn't open the door, nothing. So I didn't see it coming. And it can, time is something that people should value more. Even if it's a two second phone call to whoever, be like, hey bro, you good? Okay, bye. Like just reach out, like talk. And another thing, pictures, cause I didn't take very many pictures before the shooting. And now after the shooting, I've realized like, Pictures are worth a thousand words. So time and pictures, that's what people need to, you, you, can, you can't get that, you can't get it back. S simple times like wrapping presents and drinking Dr. Pepper while mm -hmm. eating gummy worms. You know, the, the, yep. the, those truly are the, the precious moments in life. That's the good stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's the minutes, not the hours, not the days. And so yep. as we wrap up here, I have a couple things to tell you. Number number one, thank you uh -huh. for your military services as Veterans Day is rolling up here. Second thing is thank you for your service to your community. I appreciate your resilience, your willingness to, to answer the call and then to continue on. And so we have so much to be thankful for in this life that we often lose sight of because we get too uh -huh. busy. We become, I mean, you want to talk about complacent? Most people are complacent in their thankfulness. You know, we take yeah. things for granted. And so mm -hmm. thank you. And thank you for your willingness to share this story. I am thankful that you made it through. As my sister in blue, I'm sorry you had to go through it, but I appreciate the fact that you came yeah. through it and came through it with flying colors. Everything happens for a reason. And if this is one of the reasons I'm still here is to share the story and encourage somebody, I'll be sharing it all day long. Well, we appreciate you doing that. And we got a lot to be thankful for, man. A lot to be thankful mm -hmm. for. Yeah, it's you hate that you have to hear a story like this to like have some sense knocked back into your own head to say, wait, let's slow down a little bit mm -hmm. and appreciate those little small things in your life. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And uh, thank you so much for all the service that you've done and that you continue to do. Of course. No, it's, it's my pleasure. I mean, I, I literally don't see myself doing anything else. I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>